Language Talk is a series of podcasts of interest to world language teachers seeking information about important events, initiatives, and professional development opportunities. Each month, we'll be talking with people in the know about world languages across the state. Topics include collaboration to the program review, from ACTFL news to interviews with master teachers. Language Talk is produced monthly by the Kentucky World Language Association Board and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. Welcome to Language Talk KWLA. This is your host, Laura Roche Youngworth, and today's podcast is taking a slightly different direction. Inspired by the off-air conversations that often occur with and between our guests, today's format is a roundtable-like discussion between three guests with unique professional backgrounds. Joining me are Thomas Sauer, independent educational consultant, Dr. Stace Duberbeck at the University of Kentucky, professor and director of Masters in Teaching World Languages, and Jean-Marie Rurier-Willoughby, also a professor at the University of Kentucky in Russian and Folklore, Chair of Modern and Classical Languages, Literature, and Cultures. Welcome, everyone. Thanks. Thanks. Hello. (laughs) All right. So before we get started, um, let's find out a little bit about each of you, in particular what professional experiences have greatly influenced this lens, this viewpoint you have on world languages. And doctor, I did not say that earlier, sorry. Um, Jean-Marie, would you want to start? Sure. Um, the lens that I come at this question of the importance and strategies for successful language teaching is from over 20 years of classroom teaching of Russian um, and culture at all levels. Um, being hired into UK as a teacher dedicated to language pedagogy rather than um, dedicated to some literature or cultural topic for my research agenda. Um, And also being chair and understanding how administrations and people in power look at our profession. Okay, and where were you prior to UK? University of Virginia. Okay. And Stace, what about you? Um, well, uh, I guess I started uh, teaching French and uh, decided I liked it. And uh, after stumbling from one thing to the next, just kind of that fell into my lap, I uh, ended up getting a, a degree in second language acquisition at the Pennsylvania State University, Penn State. and. Um, Then uh, worked in a linguistics department down in Florida, and then uh, came up here. And so my lens is probably a lot more on the language learning aspects of of how do teachers make an environment that uh, people will learn in. What do people do to learn languages? And you also oversee all the student teachers of world language at UK, correct? Yes. In fact, um, there was some discussion on that that... uh, you know, how much work it is, and I thought, yeah, that's actually the part of my job that I enjoy the most, is interacting with the, watching student teachers come to realize things and talking to teachers who are out there who will take student teachers and see, oh, this is what works for me or doesn't work for me. So for years, you've been in and out of, what, uh, elementary, middle, high school, world language teachers' classrooms, so that really, I'm sure, has influenced so much of what you know and what you're seeing happening. That's quite a unique experience there. And finally, Thomas, what about you? Um, well, my teaching career is kind of different than I think most people because I started in distance learning, working for the KT distance learning program. 
and it throws you for a big loop because everything that you've learned about teaching doesn't work because there aren't any kids in front of you. Huh. So you have to really think about everything that you do and you have to anticipate how your students will react to. And that really got me thinking about not just the teaching part, but just we, we talk a lot about this is what teachers do, this is what teachers do, this is what teachers do, but really also about the learning part, which is this is what the kids do, this is how they react to what the teacher does. And uh, so that was probably the first half of my career. And then the second half has been similar to stays in and out of classrooms a lot, either through uh, supervisor roles in, in two different districts or now as a consultant, um, but just being in lots of classrooms and seeing lots of teachers. Um, it's my favorite part of the job. and uh, I make sure that I try to do it at least once a week. And also for you, I know you've got a unique viewpoint because you are at so many conferences leading so many sessions. You're hearing the questions. You're seeing teachers think through you know, how to change their practice and so on. So that I'm sure that influences also. You've got your finger on what teachers need and where they are right I now. I try. <laughs> okay, so before we get started, let's go over the format of what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to kind of approach this as a think tank style, uh, where discussion will happen on three different topics or categories, uh, world language profession, instructional practices, and professional learning. Your goal is not to solve the world problems, you know, the world's problems of, of language teaching, but to chew on them and kind of feed off of each other and push each other. So if somebody says something, you know, ask them why, <laughs> you know, expand on that. That's great. And then we'll move into our lightning round where you get to give your two cents worth on something or your piece of advice for each question asked without that discussion happening. So if you all are ready, we're going to start the think tank. Okay. Everybody, okay. Everybody good? All right. Your first category is world language profession. And let's begin with this big topic. How can we meet the need for more world language educators across the nation? Because there is a distinct shortage. Last night I looked at the um, United States Department where they list all the critical shortages and almost every state it's world language, well, foreign language, but world languages is listed for majority of the states. So what can we do? How can we meet that need? Um, the first part of that question I think um, can be addressed by making sure there's language education from K on in every public school in this country. Because in order to be a language teacher, you first need language proficiency. And if you're only starting in seventh grade, you're already behind the curve. Um, it gets people excited, it gets them interested, they can do more than one language. And that of course means you need teachers, right? So one of the things that we could do is make sure that there are good um, programs, but obviously scholarships and funding uh, within the state to support that cohort that needs to know that this is indeed a shortage and there is indeed employment out there. Yeah, I think uh, along with that is uh, study abroad programs. If, if it is being taught in the high school, it's always good if teachers can take their students abroad not only for their students' benefit, but for their own benefit. And, uh, and uh, like I like the programs that they have here at UK where it, it actually is pretty cheap, relatively, to take courses abroad. Uh, so I think actually traveling abroad makes a huge difference in your ability to at least conceptualize the language and speak the language, even if you decide not to become a teacher. Well, I'll take a little different spin, surprisingly. Um, what if 
just hypothetical, not wanting to get rid of teachers, but what if we stopped viewing languages as the subject that's being taught and took a completely different approach? I think that's one of the things that's hurting us. We keep, you know, there's a shortage of foreign language teachers or world language teachers, so we're trying to pigeonhole ourselves into this one narrow, that's all we do. But in all reality, we do a whole lot more. And we start thinking about language, not just as foreign or world, but as language development overall. Because in my mind, every teacher in a school is a language teacher. It doesn't matter what quote-unquote subject they're teaching, but they're all language teachers. That's a good point. And if we start looking at it that way, and even start looking at some of the curricular changes that are happening, or even some of the structural changes that are happening in schools where we don't have six subjects per day, um, I think we can perhaps identify a different solution that we can't even think about right now. Um, I mean, if you look at what's happening at STEAM, if we're thinking, you know, that kind of model, um, or some of the project-based learning schools where the reason for learning French is not because I'm French one, but because I'm doing this gigantic project that requires me to also communicate with folks in another country and develop. So I, th I think if we, I think that's a much bigger one and that's probably going to take way more than language teachers to figure out. But I th certainly think because of the focus on language development and things like Common Core or literacy, I think that's where language teachers could help because we know how that works. Um, some of the issues that other content areas have, we actually have solutions to it. Just nobody knows that we know how to do that stuff. Yeah, I think that's not just true in how we do it, but I think it's also true in how we teach it. So like, like yes. the methodologies that we actually use in language can be spread to so many other disciplines that are, mm -hmm. I think, falling, I should say, stagnating mm -hmm. in, in old methodologies, whereas because we are at risk, I'll say, um, I think we've really gone out of our way to figure out how do we do this better, how do we teach this better, and I agree, we do get stuck on how to teach the language better, and I think it's true that sometimes we might want to be thinking more along how do we get them to think or have this perspective of the target language rather than just the, the grammar of the target language. The grammar is the easy part to test, though. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, kind of throwing you a, a second question feeding off of what you said, Thomas, interesting thought. What language? Oh, I couldn't care less. I mean, I've never, you know, I, I hate when schools try to do this, of pushing one language towards the other. Um, it doesn't really matter. And we know that it's not the language that determines if a program stays or goes, it's the effectiveness of the teacher. Um, we can have very effective teachers of languages that nobody ever heard of, and those programs will grow very large. Um, we can have very ineffective teacher of the same language and they get rid of the language and then we'll blame because it's a not widely used language. Um, when we started a, a new elementary IB program in Louisville, the first IB learning program in the state, um, they asked me, so what language should we do? Spanish or Chinese? And I said, I don't really care. Uh, whatever language you think is possible, just think about it for a while. But a week later they called me back and then they said, well, we called the headquarters of IB in Switzerland and they answered the phones in French. So we think we should be doing French. <laughs> and so they ended up doing a French elementary program, which, you know, in, in the early two, mid-2000s, that was not a That's, hot language. Yeah. So that shows you it really doesn't matter. And, and they have a very effective teacher, and the program is growing. And so, yeah, I, I couldn't. Whatever, whatever situation requires, no, no. I guess. And it's true that we know that the language itself doesn't matter. That is, if what we're talking about here is... Uh, linguistic development and literacy skills 
knowing that there's more than one system, whether that's a Spanish system, a Chinese system, a French system, or a Russian system, the key is knowing that there are more than one system. Yeah. And so if that's the case, that there is more than one system, if that's the case, then it really doesn't matter. There are political reasons, there are strategic reasons, there are all kinds of other things. There's local population reasons. In Bowling Green, perhaps Bosnian should be the language. Yeah. But yeah, that, point. that just, you have to think about what your context is. The key though is, as Stace pointed out and Thomas pointed out, we do know effective teaching strategies. We work very hard at it because there is a huge barrier, as we all know. And we can be presenting a lot of information that goes undiscovered because people don't really look at us beyond teaching verb forms. Well, that segues in beautifully to a next question. And this is something that's very personal to me. How can we change this viewpoint in the United States that world languages is not an elective, it's a core? It's so important, that classification, just at a school, the way you're looked at, the, the way the students look at it, the parents look at it, the administrators look at it, and what Thomas said, it should be spiraled into every content at the school, or could be, theoretically. So how do we make that change? It won't happen overnight. No. I mean, it's two things. It's the one thing I already talked about, that we have to start viewing it as language development. Forget the foreign world in front, just language development, because we know that any kids taking any language that transfers to their first language as well. Mm -hmm. So it is language development, it's literacy development, and those skills are transferable. I mean, that's why immersion works so beautifully. Um, and the second one for just a traditional classroom is we got to give those kids, we have to ensure those kids get better results earlier on. You know, we can't have kids leaving two years at, at novice. You just can't. Because that means it's not, it's just a fun two-year experience, and it's not valued as core because I can't do anything with it. So getting kids to graduate from high school is somewhere in the immediate range has to be key to this um, so that those students and then their parents think that, oh, we are actually getting something out of it. I mean, nobody questions music or band because those kids get better and better and better and they have opportunities to perform and perform and perform publicly, get feedback. And, uh, you know, those parents, it's the first class that's scheduled. That The band class is the first class. It doesn't matter how many AP classes. Band gets scheduled first because those parents will move everything to make sure that their kids are in those classes because it's valued as a skill that, and it's valued as something the kids are getting better at. You can, you can have perceivable increases in, in skill. Yeah, whereas language, right. I, I mean, can you order a cup of coffee or not? It's not, it's not going to get them thinking better about life and world, yeah. Well, and the other point is not only is it the measurable outcomes, but it's the, I mean, preparation for college. All of these core courses are preparation for college because chemistry, for example, that's not something that a lot of high school students use beyond, unless they go into chemistry, right. you know. Or even even algebra 2 is not something that they're, they're going to use for the rest of their lives, whereas... Interestingly enough, language is actually something that always comes up in conversations, mm -hmm. at least with me, but that's probably due to my background. Oh, I took this class, and yeah, I can still say these couple of words. No one ever says to me, oh, yeah, I took this class, and I can still name 14 of the elements on the periodic chart. <laughs> and so I think um, selling language more as a, 
as college prep that it actually teach you, teaches you not only to, to like um, Thomas says, to think, to communicate better, but also to think better. And there's a number of stu studies out there that show that the more you use a foreign language, the more empathetic you are to other people, the more able you are to switch perspectives, which is a really valuable global competence skill that we ought to be aiming for more. And, and if we push that idea of usage rather than seat time, <laughs> then I think that'll make a, a, a difference. I, I mean, again, the difference between core and elective is, is more political than philosophical, I think. It's deep, though. So, yeah. It, it impacts everything. It impacts, you know, when you're at a school, it, it impacts the amount of time you have with the kids, the scheduling, the just the whole infrastructure yeah, is, is around a core versus elective class. Mm -hmm. And, um, t you know, as a teacher in the classroom, there's nothing more significant that I would want to change than that classification and viewpoint of world languages. I think it would be just critical for us to get every kid to speak a world language. That has to happen. But, you know, that's not going to happen, right? Do you think so? I mean, I don't want to beat a Debbie Downer, but it's not going to happen in the way that you want to be like them. Yeah. The change has to happen in the way that we're changing the whole system. The whole system. Because you can't add more core. I mean, it's just, and then, because then it's no longer core, then it's just everything, which is exactly what we want, right? We want right. everybody to do, do all of that. But in order for that to happen, there has to be other structural changes in the school system. Otherwise, that's not going to happen. Good point. Good point. Do you think most teachers feel the way you do? about moving into core and and, think and the responsibilities that come with core. Well, I was about to say. They I don't think, know that often, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think many would prefer not to because they're, they're good. Just leave me alone. Mm -hmm. Let me stay over here in elective land. Mm -hmm. But um, for me as a teacher, I don't make the decisions for me. I make it for what's best for my students. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that might be a defining characteristic of different teachers. When you ask them, you'll find out they're making it for themselves, what's best for themselves sometimes. And I think teachers who care about their students and look at everything through the student's eyes would agree, we want it core. And well, if you're going to get it to be core, redesigning the system is important. Having um, the awareness that this is language development, not world language, language development is important. College prep is important. But it has to be practical. You're only going to sell it if you can convince parents and administrators and government funders that there's a reason to do this beyond, right. hey, French is fun. That's what I was getting at when I was talking and when we were discussing the last issue about the political questions, the strategic questions. Those have to be weighed, but we need to present a cogent case. Actful does a pretty good job of doing that. Mm -hmm. But there's so much research out there and there's not an easy one-stop shopping location on the web or anywhere to say, look, this is why. These are the practical reasons. These are literacy development reasons. These are college prep reasons. These are reasoning, abstract reasoning reasons. Um, and these are the uh, socio-political reasons. There is one website, of course, I cannot think of the name of it. So I'll find out and you can link to it later. But that gives you a state map view of how many languages are spoken, what's the foreign investment, yes. um, what are the college requirements, and it's for every single wow. state. Uh, it's a, and it's graphically really beautiful. You can just choose the state and it'll open, to the, almost, it creates an infographic for each state as far as what the language needs are. It's the, oh yes, language needs. It's something, I'll think of it. 
but uh, there's something like that out there. It's just nobody knows yeah. about it, even in the language yeah. teacher field. Which if is you, yeah, because we can put it on the site. Yeah. Under the podcast. I will say, um, Stace, in your question, you've got my brain whirling. Right now, I think in a lot of schools, world languages is the king or queen elective. Mm-hmm. We're top the totem pole, along with music or orchestra. Um, I think that is a nice place to be if we have to be somewhere. But I think there's a lot of schools where they're not at the top. They're at the bottom of the elective. Um, I don't know what you call that, um, hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we have to be somewhere, I guess that's a place to be if we can't be core. But um, when you do have states that make decisions, such as in Kentucky, they got rid of the Commonwealth Diploma, which had taking an AP World Language as one of the requirements, and they got rid of it. And it's like, why? Why did you do that? And so um, I just see us taking steps backwards in many of the states um, where World Languages was important. Here's a way we're showing it's important, and then they take it away. But it's kind of a fault. Standards have been around for 20 years, now they're fresh. Proficiency guidelines have been around for over 30 years. Performance guidelines have been around for almost 20 years. Can-do statements have been around for almost 10 years now. And yet, we're not delivering any better results than we did 20, 30 years ago. So at some point we have to, as a field, I'm not saying individually, but as a field we have to look in the mirror and say, we are not doing our end of the job. We're we're doing a real good job advocating for foreign languages, but to me, advocacy starts in the classroom, right? That's where the advocacy starts, is, is that you create kids who can use the language, who have this open mind where they can make empathetic decisions about every, everything else in the world. Um, until we do that and get away from grammar charts and worksheets and all the stuff that we're still, do, we're still doing, that's the hard part. Because, I mean, you know, I spent nine years in administration telling folks, well, that's not how we do it anymore. And then I would <laughs> leave that meeting and go to a classroom, and it's exactly how we're doing it. So principals, administrators, lawmakers who end up making those kind of decisions, like the Commonwealth Diploma one, they have kids, their parents, their grandparents, and they know that nothing has changed. What do we need to make things change? So that gets into our instructional practices. I'm going to That's where it starts, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that's it. So we do have, like, literally revised world readiness standards. Mm-hmm. How many teachers know they've been revised? How many know what the change is? How do we change that? Well, the first thing you do is you prep them well. You have good programs that they are Who's in. Who's in charge of doing that? Well, in this state, only one person. Uh, yeah. That, that, that would be me. Yes. Okay. And I do make sure that everyone that comes out of my program knows okay. about Okay. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I, the other thing is a, a lot of, and this, this is something that I tell my students every year, I say, I say to them, don't lose, don't lose touch with each other. There are only a few people in the state who think the same way you do because everyone else was trained 30 years ago before we had these things. Not everyone, but a lot of people. Or they had alternate certif- alternative certification. And that doesn't mean they're bad teachers. They just they didn't get all of this provided easily to them. And so they've got to really go out of their way to find it. And I think the value of professional organizations and having a professional learning group is so critical to all teachers because things do change. And I mean, I spend, you know, half my time observing teachers and the other half finding out what everyone else in the country is doing and the world is doing to figure out 
how to teach languages better. And so I have all of these things. And, you know, Thomas will tell me, oh, there's this. Have you seen that? Like, oh, that's fascinating to see. And so if you come out of a good program, I, I can give you all of these things. Or if you go to ACTFL or to KWLA, you talk to people who have these things. Or if you listen to the podcast, I mean, a lot of it is just having the conversation, just thinking about, oh, this is something that is new. And then you think about it and go, oh, it's really not that new. It's something that we were doing 20 years ago. Or, oh, this is something that we did 20 years ago, but I'm still not doing it. Maybe I could try it. And I think that's an important conversation to have. It's just keeping in touch with the other language teachers who think the same way you do. I mean, you're in a great school, Laura. You have a peer there that you bounce ideas off all the time. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, not all teachers have peers in their school who of, of like minds. And so that's why it's important to find those peers in other schools who think the same way you do and who want to improve the same way you do. Even if they're the, you're a middle school teacher and they're the high school teacher and you say, oh, well, let's have a conversation, if not about articulation, then anything, or vice versa. And I think that's just having the conversation is critical. I'm glad you said the thing about they're not bad teachers because I think that's important. Because yeah. people think, well, you're so negative, Thomas. And like, it's, they're not bad teachers. Right. It's often that they just don't know. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's like the question you ask about even the update and the standards. Most people just don't know. Now, they're not bad teachers, but they do have a certain responsibility to find out. To find out. Because that's the difference between now and 20 years ago, right? 20 years ago, you may have sent an email but you don't know where it really went. But information <laughs> yeah. flew a little differently, right? I mean, it was a lot of... That's a good point. Good so, point. But now you do have, you have access to this information. And, you know, and I'll plug LangChat again because I mm -hmm. think it's the best source of information. Um, if you want to find out and you want to connect and talk to other people that are thinking like you or not thinking like you, but yeah. may maybe try to help you reflect on your own teaching, I think that's a great source. And there's other avenues that you can go. But... That is your responsibility, probably number one professional responsibility as a teacher, to find out, okay, what I did today, did it work, did it not work? If it didn't work, who can I connect with that can help me make it better? Because likely there is nobody at the school that can help me that understands. How many people, if you're the only Russian teacher, there's nobody in that building that you can ask to help you <laughs> convey whatever it is better. You have to connect with another right. Russian teacher who may be you know, thousands of miles away, but you can do that in 2016. Yeah, you can. And wh when I came, I came out of a very traditional Slavic languages and literatures program that threw us in a classroom and said, okay, here's second year Russian, go teach. Um, and so we, we were responsible at that moment to figure out what was going on. So I was hired here to be a good language teacher. So the first thing I started to do was connecting with the people in the field who were known for being on the cutting edge of language pedagogy. And I went to summer institutes, many of which provide scholarships for in-service teachers, like Carla at the University of Minnesota and Clear at Michigan State University. This summer, uh, speaking activities for oral proficiency is one thing that Clear is doing. Uh, how to create authentic materials, how to use authentic materials. It can be very basic, it can be advanced. I went year after year and did follow-ups. And there were people there from all across the country and world that I could then say, okay, I tried this new technology that we learned about at CLEAR. It didn't work. What are you guys seeing? Because you can have theory as much as you want, but until you're in the classroom doing on a daily basis these activities, 
and you need support and you need feedback. I think I will throw in though, I think enough of the world language profession has heard of being proficiency based. They have a slight idea, some more than others, of what it is. And I, for me, what I run into the most is, yeah, that proficiency based thing. I'm, I'm, my kids can speak French when they leave my room. And they're seeing results from what they're doing because, you know, it does produce language. Even your worst teacher, the kids are going to produce language at some Something. level. <laughs> yeah. But um, for me, it's more just encouraging them because there is no accountability. So that's why I want core, because there's accountability. If you're an elective, there's no accountability. And so when the new standards, the ELA standards came out, teachers were, okay, what are they? How do I do this? Making changes like crazy, where a lot of administrators were like, hold on, hold on, let's, you know, pulling back their teachers to make sure they fully understood it, got good training before they did it. Where with world languages, why would you change if you're seeing some results from your kids? Well, and you don't have administrators saying, wait, wait, hold on, let me train you on this first. What, for world languages, they say, well, yeah, go train yourself on this if you want to. But we don't have like. an in test. I mean, of course, we have Apple, we have Stamp, but you have to pay for those. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know the statistics on how many teachers proficiency test their kids. I don't think it's horribly high, but um, if it is, we need to buy stock. But um, it's we have no reason to change our instructional practices except for a moral reason. Right. I have a friend of mine who always says that teachers don't change until they have to. And luckily she works in a state where race to the top was, was one of the first race to the top states. So teacher evaluation was has been there for a while now, and obviously now in Kentucky it is too, we'll see where it goes, but that's why I was a big fan of the, the teacher evaluations, the, the revised teacher evaluation system, because it finally brought some accountability right. to teachers. Uh, now I know we had some issues with implementation and understanding of it, but I think that is certainly a way to help teachers see if it's a good system, if it's based on, on the test scores, it's not that good, but if it's based on reflection of the practice, then it can help, um, because I think Aside from teachers getting some success, which I think you're totally right, the other problem is that they have never seen it. Yeah. So we, we don't have any models in this country. Yeah. The only models we have video-wise is the Annenberg series, which is from 1999. So that's now 17 years old. And they're great models still, to some degree, but surely we can figure out a way to get more examples out there. Because that's what people tell me all the time. They say, I'm with you with all the stuff you talk about in your workshops. But I need to see it. I need to see what that looks like. And I don't need to see it in a, some kind of New England fancy private school. I need to see it with my inner city kids, what that potentially could look like. And I think that's where we need to really go as a field. We need to help figure out how we can share more examples, actual classroom examples, so teachers can see that, yes, this is possible. Because often people say, yeah, but, yeah, but, or not with my kids. It won't work with me. I, you can do that, but I can't do it. Yeah. And then they don't try it to see. And you know, I was talking to my wife about this, that, you know, failure is more important than success. Absolutely. It is. And, and the evaluation system actually makes that happen because for a number of reasons, when you fail, you realize, oh, I can get better. But they just did studies that show that your brain actually produces more positive results when you fail than when you succeed. So you actually improve more 
when you failed and when you see, which is tough for a lot of perfectionist American, teachers. Well, perfectionist teachers, but even American culture, we don't yeah. we don't like to fail. Right. We we just we we think it's a bad thing. It has negative connotations. But I think I'm reminded of you when you said you said you started teaching and uh, you were afraid to teach the whole class in German because uh, they can't understand. Anything I, I'm telling them, and so first semester you didn't do it, but then second semester I guess you did, or third semester, and then when you finally did, you're like, oh, I can do this. And I think, like, you, yeah, most of our teachers are are like that. They're like, oh, I can do this. And I'm it going took back eight semesters, by the way, <laughs> what so four it? years what was it? to get there. Oh. Ouch. It takes time. It takes time. <laughs> it does. It's scary. Yeah, but you know, also with the evaluations, and going back to what you're saying, it, it helps define the job. It helps them say, oh. This is what I should be focusing. This is what's important, and then whatever else I can do is the ethical improvement on top of that. But I think there are so many things that teachers can do to improve their teaching that if you try and focus on all of them, your head will explode. And I think that one little nudge of saying, "Okay, this is the these are the three things I'm going to work on. I'm going to do experiments in my class with these three things this semester and see what happens." And no one is going to get great overnight. No, I totally agree. I mean, we have, you know, I work with the TEL project, and that's one of our big things is that get teachers to focus. First, identify one small thing they can get better at, and then have a specific timeline for one or two things that they can get better at. Um, because that is the problem. You go to a conference, and you come home with all these ideas, right? And you're going to throw out everything on Monday, and you end up not doing anything because it is so overwhelming. And that's actually a problem of the conference is often that there's too much and there's not enough focus and the way people choose what sessions they go to is problematic because there's just too much. And so I think if we can bring some more focus to professional development and personalize it, that it will really help the folks who say, yes, I want to get better at this one thing, I think we would see changes much faster than this large scale. Here are all the things you should be doing. Yeah. And then teachers go, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible teacher. And they go back in their room and don't do anything differently, which I don't even blame them because I would feel terrible as well. So, yeah, giving and then giving folks some measures of success along the way, too. Yeah. Part of uh, what I would also say is evaluations aside, although they are important, you have to realize that your survival is on the line here. I mean, one motivation to change <laughs> is yeah. not just because we want our students to produce better language or gain all of the skills that language can give you, but because if you're not doing a good job, you can lose the program, right. especially if it's an elective. So these questions are important not just because we want good teachers in the classroom, but because we need to make sure that our programs are intact when we step aside and someone else moves in, otherwise they won't bother to replace the teacher. And that's true for all languages now, right? It used to be yeah. just for those smaller languages, right? and now all of a sudden that's true for some of the other languages as well, including yeah. Spanish. I just read an article where the whole high school got rid of all the languages, including Spanish, in favor of Wizard of Stone, um, in, in Colorado of all what? places. Oh, yeah. So it's not just that those small languages that are in danger. It's, in Kentucky. it's, yeah, it's yeah. happening, and yeah. so I think that's, that, that should be pretty good motivation. Mm -hmm. So let's just play a little game here. From what you all said, I'm hearing first we need to retrain administrators to fully understand. So like I know, Thomas, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't that one of the inspirations of the TEL project was um, what do you look for 
in a world language program that's mm-hmm. proficiency based. Mm-hmm. So we've got that that you all have mentioned is a need. We need to make sure administrators fully understand uh, what they should be looking for. And the second thing I'm hearing is, and this is somebody who's listening, you can make a million dollars off this, we need a vid- video series that not only shows proficiency-based instruction, but we need to break it down. What are the little things you can be doing that change, here's how to conjugate a verb on the board, to using it in a proficiency-based manner? And we've done, a, so if, if you allow me to plug for a second, mm-hmm. I've done a couple of those videos, I'm working with StarTalk, um, which is this National Security right. Language Initiative. We have produced, I think it's now six videos that kind of highlight, they're about five minutes long, highlight some of the like big hot button issues like staying in target language, um, performance-based assessment, learning targets. Um, if you go to the, the tellproject.org website, you can find those there. But, but it's just, you know, it's that's 30 minutes total of video. We need, I, I want thousands of minutes and of video. Well, you know, StarTalk so, has quite a few videos online mm-hmm. that you can, that, uh, the problem with that is you, if you don't know what you're looking at or for, it's, yeah. it's hard to digest them. Like yeah, so, so ours are kind of uh, edited together in a way that we have the teachers reflecting on what they did mm-hmm. in the classroom, and then we also interviewed the kids, So, which is, I, I think, the best part of the videos because the kids are talking about why this is important to them and why it helped them learn the language. And that's more convincing than any workshop, than any consultant, than any specialist to go out there. When you have a kid telling you, you know, the teachers who speak a target language the most are really the ones that help me learn the language the most, then my work is, I mean, I don't have to work anymore, which is great. So what I'm after, you're kind of giving in those Start Talk videos the strategies. Mm-hmm. I want teachers to not only understand the strategies that lead to proficiency-based uh, instruction, what activities, what instead of conjugating the verb on the board, do this? Because I can talk in the target language and conjugate a verb on the board. <laughs> See what I mean? Yes, Check. Yes. I did what you said. <laughs> so what are some activities that are very conducive, very reflective of that's a proficiency-based classroom? You walk by, you see it happening, you're like, there it is. Does that make sense? Mm. I think maybe a better measure of, of that is not necessarily uh, teacher talking in the target language, but students talking in the target language. Yes. Yes. And, and that's mean, one of the videos okay. as well. So we created a video called uh, Empowering Students to Use the Target Language. Because mm-hmm. we've there's been so much focus on teacher yes. using target language, but if you look at the actual position statement, it says teachers and students 90%, which if you think about that, that's huge. It yeah. kind of blows your mind. Um, so we, uh, one of the videos we did create was that, and when you go to, when you see that, then you have to really think about everything, because you can't just get kids to use yeah. the target language, yeah. right? So then we're talking about starts with targets. What are the targets? What's the context of the learning that's happening? Um, so yeah, the conjugating the verb is not a context that's going to get any kid yeah. to use the target language. But if it's something that's to bring back to your your community part or the, the immediate need in, in the environment gets them. Um, the second part of that is uh, measurable. Is it actually appropriate for the level of proficiency they're at? So am I asking them to do something that's age appropriate and proficiency appropriate? And then giving them the tools so they can actually do it. So if that means to have word walls, that means to have even some grammar charts. If, if they know where they can access those tools that allow them to use the language, because often they can do it. They're just they just don't know how they, to. Oh, they yes. forget. It's just kind of yeah. like, yes. just, I just need something. If right. I could just see that thing again yeah. that you showed me two weeks ago, 
it would trigger that. So I would love to see, just the way classrooms look, I can tell what, what kind of classroom it is too. Yeah, I recently did observations, and I don't know how many times I must have said, the student teacher will say something like, well, I don't know why they couldn't do it. And I said, they could, but you just needed to tell them how they're supposed to answer. And a lot of times, that's, mm -hmm. that's all they need is, yes, you can yes. do this. Here's how to answer whatever question we're doing. And going back to what Thomas said about verb conjugations and getting somewhere in the target language, I always think it's funny because I tell my students, so yeah, when I go to a boulangerie in France and I walk in and say, <laughs> je fais, tu fais, il fait, nous faisons, vous faites, ils font. <laughs> the guy at the other side is going to be like, yeah, that doesn't get me anything. I don't know what right. to do with that. That's the point is figuring out what you want your students to do, how you want them to do it, and then giving them the language to accomplish it. Because again, we're not teaching them the language. We're giving them language to use in order to teach them other things. And my students actually asked me a really good question last week. They're like, well, I feel like I'm giving it all away if I write it all on the board. And I said, you are. <laughs> That's the point. Write what they're supposed to say on the board and they can choose and they can improvise and they can create with things that you haven't written on the board. As long as they understand that for the novice level, that's okay. Novice yeah. low, novice mid, fine. And then as your students spiral up and move up to novice high, you should be doing much less of that because I think that sometimes teachers don't have a full understanding of, okay, I know what the proficiency levels are. What does that mean that I do? Mm -hmm. How do I get my kids there? That's huge. It's true. But I think the saddest statement I hear and have been listening to ever since I started working as a language major and teacher, I took X years of Y language and I can't say a thing. I try to be encouraging and I say, oh, it's hidden in there. You know, if you got into a context in Spain, you'd probably bring things back, et cetera. But basically, they were never asked to mm -hmm. use the language. And that's why you can't say a thing. Right. Or you're terrified, even if you think I'm at a boulangerie or a restaurant here in Central Kentucky, I could speak this language, I'm not going to say anything. Because then I will be faced with a so-called barrage of the language and I'll look like an idiot. Or in some cases where we are seeing teachers now beginning to shift and do some of those things, but the kids aren't aware yet. So I think that that closure of the lesson, the part that we never get to, that, that celebrating learning is the most important part of the lesson. Because you gotta leave, those kids have to leave the classroom thinking, I can do something now that I couldn't do That's when I walked so in. That's so powerful, Thomas. And so, powerful. but we never, because we run out of time, yeah. right? And, and that's just, I mean, I'm the worst offender of that in workshops, I always run out of time, but then, my students, the teachers, are leaving without thinking they can do anything differently before. So, yeah, I totally agree. So even, uh, that's two parts. A, we have to create learning scenarios where they can use the language, but then we have to also make the kids aware of all the, I mean, that's the power of those can-do statements, yes. right? Is that the students are aware of what they can do. Um, and that happens at the last five minutes of a class. Mm -hmm. And, and, it, and not, not just at the end of the week or every once in a while, but every single class, because they're gonna leave and go into an all English, all girlfriend, boyfriend, you know, chemistry, social studies environment that has nothing to do with the language anymore. So they have to, you have to really put a it's bow so on that fine. experience. And it's better to get, lose that five minutes of drill practice, Absolutely. whatever you're doing, and provide that for them, than simply say, well, let's just talk up until the very last minute yep. and then goodbye. 
Okay, so Stace, you kind of got on the edge of this mm. in your answer. So I want to go back to it because I'm not letting you all off the hook. I'm hearing a perfect PD then as Thomas, hint, hint, is here's traditional ways to teach. Let me show you it proficiency-based. I know some people like to do that, but... Hold on, hold on. There's more to it. Just chew on that one because I'm telling you that's what teachers want. You walk away from a conference. Oh, I'm not going to conjugate that verb anymore. I'm going to do this. But I want to acknowledge there is a generation of teachers out there right now that has never done it any other way, especially in Kentucky. Yeah. We have teachers who have come. I mean, we have great stuff going on in Kentucky. Right, right, right. So we have this group of teachers who know and who are doing it, maybe not all the time, but most of the time. And so... But we have to account for, like, look at my age group. You know, I graduated from UK in 92. And that, when I went into my first year teaching, I 100% admit I could not speak French to teach. Mm -hmm. I could talk about literature and the beauties of literature and the nuances of words. I literally had to look up, open your book, turn to, I mean, literally, I didn't know how to say those sure. things. Can I go to the bathroom? use that in college what I didn't you know I they were things I had never used so you have to look at someone my age who's willing to change give me the bridge show me how to take what I'm doing and cross over well you'd be surprised when I answer because I actually think they already know do you I've gotten the last couple of years to the point where I think that teachers know how to teach well they have the wrong targets so we're teaching, mm. we're doing, even the worst teacher knows how to at some point get the kids to talk to each other. Yeah. Might be way more structures than we like, might be whatever. What I'm seeing is I'm seeing all these great teachers out there, but the problem is the learning goal is the long one. It's either a just grammar one, it's one that's way too high, it's one way too low for their proficiency level. I think if we can change the targets, both in terms of proficiency and in terms of context, because that's the other thing, right? We're teaching these ridiculous context that no kid is actually interested in whatsoever because sixth graders don't design dream homes and dream apartments but we all do it because that's our textbook told us for a long time or the daily routine or whatever it is you know the, all those favorite language teacher that's the problem I think if we can fix those targets I think teachers can use their skills and their great activities they already have in mind and change what's happening in their classroom and they'll see much better success because I've been in these classrooms where teachers are like, man, this is really good, this is really good, but why did you do this second and not first? And the kids can't do that yet. So just the idea of going from input to output. Teachers know how to do input activities. They know how to do output activities. The problem is they're doing them in the wrong order or not enough input activities. And that starts all with the learning targets that they or, or, have for. Or they're doing input activities that aren't really input activities. <laughs> well, they're doing input activities that are teacher output activities, yes. but they're not student input activities. And I think that's a, maybe that's too nuanced for a smaller discussion, but I think a lot of times we, we think if we're talking, they're listening. And right. the good teachers don't think that. I, I don't think that. But new, new teachers, teachers, I think, do. have to <laughs> overcome that idea of if I'm talking, they're listening. So. But that gets back to the target. Well, we don't even have interpretive targets often. Often our targets are output. Yes, yes, right? yes. Yeah, so yeah. We don't know what if we have interpretive target, which is just I can understand and identify when my teacher speaks, that changes <laughs> now what the kind of activity that I do. Right. Um, so I'm convinced that actually we have, we, we have great teachers. Yeah. But we have the wrong goals in mind often. I'm not saying we don't have great teachers, though, and I agree with everything you said. 
Sometimes, though, you need to take the teacher by the hand yeah. and practice with them and show them and convince them you can do it. It's not that much work. Just make those changes. Move over. You Which know. means to have to experience it again, right? Yeah, so it's, it's either true. the video, that's, that's the one thing, but then I also think PD has to change. Most adults have experienced all of their learning, no matter if it's foreign language teaching or anything else, in a very sit and get, deliver kind of way, right? I mean, that's how all training on anything goes. And then we tell them, oh, now go deliver student-centered instruction, do all these interactive things. But when you come to the PD, it's like, don't talk, turn your cell phone off. I mean, listen. So it's all those things that we don't want them to do in the classroom, but it's exactly what they experience. So changing, I, I'm convinced that we've got to change PD in the way we train teachers in a way that they can experience those things. Because you have to, no yeah, matter the right. age, it doesn't matter what age or how yeah. we Yeah. Because if they, even the new teachers are still all, maybe not stays as students, but most of them are still undergoing a very traditional training model. Yeah. It's I hard would, to break out of that model. I would love to see universities step up. I, I really would and offer, I don't want to say monthly, but quarterly free PD to teachers. I, I really, I think our universities is a place where we can get that. If we can hire someone like Thomas, that's wonderful. But not every district or school has that funds. And, right. you know, small steps would be universities providing that knowledge. No, okay. it's... Uh, it, it's really not like it's, knowledge, it's the experience. Yeah. Because the experience I think they have to, like... Because yeah. be, that's what happened in a couple of these I've been working on, and they were never the intention, but then people re told me afterwards, like, when we were doing it, it finally clicked in my head. Yes. I mean, just the idea of brain mm -hmm. breaks, right? So I started doing brain breaks in my workshops because I talk about them all the time. But until people were actually experience. doing them and realizing, oh, brain breaks actually work, if I just tell them they're important, they'll never do them. Because they're like, oh, that's just a fluffy thing. It's like a little fat that goes away. But by them actually experiencing them multiple times in the workshop, they go, oh, I should do this with my kids because it's working for me right now as a learner. No, it's something that we've talked about in MCL. The problem is, of course, always timing, location, yeah. dean support, etc. Um, but it's certainly something to bring not only back to the department to raise again, but also to the chairs group that yes. meets at Koala and see if perhaps we can have one or two point people who can start thinking about this in more concrete ways. Because we all agree this is a valuable thing, we, a service we could provide, and it would help us and the teachers, and students obviously, agreeing and doing two very different things. Right. So and like something Stace, to work on. You have classes yeah. with your student teachers. Open them up once in a while. You know what? That's so funny that you that you say that because this semester I almost sent you a syllabus and said, you know, which of these things you think other teachers? Because I think it would be great all if my them. students. I think it'd be great. All of them. <laughs> but just imagine, yeah, well, maybe. If, if, you know, one teacher at a time just said, you know what? I'm free Monday night at six o'clock. I'll I'll step in. It looks like they're talking about. I mean, this. my classes are every Wednesday night at. Uh, like six to eight anyway. Okay. So it, it, yeah, it would be pretty easy. I just. But imagine if all across the nation, you know, colleges were willing to do that. Yeah. The impact would be humongous. Yeah. It, there'd be no excuse, no excuse to not embrace the changes we're still trying to make, you know, 20 something years now. So, okay, I'm going to move on to the last question in instructional practices. Um, it's an obvious one, but I still want your all's take on this. Um, global competency, culture. 
What role does that play in language teaching? Well, I'm a folklorist, um, and so my argument has been that is the goal of language teaching. It's hard to get everyone on the same page there. Uh, I think they're more willing to jump into the idea of literacy development, which I'm not diminishing. I think it's a very important skill. But ultimately, language is the doorway to culture. And by understanding language, you are really ultimately having the goal to understand the culture. Of course, it's enhanced by studying abroad, by the empathy that you gain, by all kinds of other things. But I don't understand why people are so resistant to this, because very often it's the culture that brings them to the language. Mm -hmm. And it isn't that you are linguistically inclined, like Stace and I are, and you're fascinated by aspect and verb voice systems, <laughs> which you know was my dissertation topic. But um, it really is because, hey, I saw a holiday, or I think this food is cool. Yeah. And if you are not recognizing that and using that as a motivation and an ultimate goal, I think you're really doing a disservice to your students. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to piggyback on what you just said, I think uh, the studies that find out why, that have looked at why students continue, the number one reason is first their teacher, and the second is culture. And those, depending on which study you, you read, those go back and forth, that they you know, like a study abroad uh, study that I just read showed that uh, students who went abroad, uh, they either came back loving the language or hating the language, oh, and wow. they never want to go back again. And I think even hating the language is a benefit because it teaches them to, oh, I am not willing to accept this culture. I am not willing to, I mean, that it helps them understand themselves. And I think Having a sense of identity for middle school and high school kids is the main purpose of school for them, whether it is or not for us. And I think that languages play an enormous role in that identity development of students because in no other class do they talk about what do I like to eat for example, or what do I think is interesting, or what do I want to do in life. And I think I, I just think global competence is, is a subset of identity development of the students. And, mm -hmm. and if we're not making people, we're really not doing much, I think. The problem is for teachers is we don't know how to do it at the yeah. novice level. I mean, this is great. I don't disagree yeah, with yeah, you. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. It's, yeah, sign me up. But how do I do it with kids who don't really have any language yet? Um, you get them beyond that language quickly. By, by doing all the things we've said earlier. That was exactly <laughs> going to be my point, yeah. I think that should be the motivation to make sure that we don't stick in the novice range for so long. We, we can't eliminate it. You have to go through it. But the faster we can get out of it, we can get to this beautiful piece and the more important piece of language learning, absolutely. Well, and you know, that goes to the discussion that Laura and I had a, a couple months ago about just because they're at the novice level, proficiency doesn't mean they can't do intermediate level tasks with sufficient scaffolding. If you set it up with enough pictures and language support and, yeah. and, and letting them know how to respond, they can really do quite a bit more at the intermediate level. If and that requires you to have, broken record, the right targets. Um, uh, I was just going to say can't do statements. <laughs> I mean, but that's... <laughs> yeah, yeah that's thing. the target. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the one thing I do say um, to my student teachers all the time um, 
well, I say a lot to them, but uh, the one thing I try to harp on is why did you teach that? What cultural goal, and that's how I always phrase it, what cultural goal are you trying to target with the language? So, you know, if they're doing a, a grammar or something, I'm like, so culturally that gets, and they always stare at me like, what? <laughs> I'm like, what was your goal for the kids to do? There is no language without culture. There is no language without culture. Oh, I'm sorry, there's coding. I, I just, there is no separation between the two. Okay, professional learning. We've kind of gone through all the topics, but I do want to go back to one, and I think, Thomas, you're the only one, I think it was you, who tapped on this. What is the future of, the advantages of, the importance of professional organizations? Well, the benefit is that it connects people that don't know how to get connected any other way. And so I think that, I think that is valuable. Uh, the KWLA conference is a great opportunity to go and see people that you don't normally see and have these conversations we were talking about. No, I agree. I think that that, that is a, a benefit. Um, going, hearing people that you wouldn't have a chance to, master teachers that are in your area, learning that they're there, that they're willing to talk to you about this if you're going to go try whatever they demonstrated. Um, and certainly in the case of being a member of Actful, you're up on what's going on in terms of proficiency development and goals and how do we approach this. So that's my take. Thomas, I think they, I think they do quite a bit of advocacy too. Mm -hmm. Yes, and they allow you to do advocacy and can support you if, if you need support when you're potentially losing your program. No, I think it's, it's, it's very important. I hope that these professional organizations begin to adapt to mm -hmm. maybe the change in time that we're in, because a lot of them have lots of history, and having worked with lots of them, there's usually more politics involved that have nothing to do with the realities of teachers. And so I think they need, a lot of them need to grow up and really realize that you know it's, it's do or die time for language teachers. Um, we're gonna move on to lightning round. This is where you don't feed off each other. Okay. You just give your answer. If you need to pass, you pass but we want to come back to you at some point if the thought comes to you. Is everybody ready? Yes, ready. Okay, who wants to go first so we know? Okay, they're pointing at Thomas. Thomas, <laughs> you're going to go first. One book, every world language educator, if they read it, wow, what a change we would make. You really recommend? Um, it changes all the time, but right now I probably still recommend the newest edition of well, new title, Languages and Learners Making the Match from Helena Curtin. Oh, you took my book. You cannot answer that way. You must come up with the second book. I have to come book. up with the second book? <laughs> no, yeah. you, you second with Thomas. I mean, I agree with, uh, with Thomas that it changes uh, regularly, but that's a book, I mean, that's a staple that I think if, if you really need a list of where to start with looking up things, that's probably the best comprehensive book to start Most with. Most accessible book, I think. Uh, accessible, yeah. And it's available in Chinese. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the next one I would probably, uh, the first 100 days of school is a nice one to, mm -hmm. a lot of time, my teachers, for example, don't know how to get started in the first 100 days of school is a good, good book to get you there. A book that really changed the way I approach all my classes, even though it's designed for language teachers, Language Learning Strategies, What Every Teacher Should Know, Rebecca Oxford. I realized that much of, like you said earlier, Thomas, 
Uh, much of what I was doing in language classes, I was not doing in my folklore class or my linguistics class, and that was really doing a disservice to <laughs> the learning outcomes of those classes. And so by doing the learning strategies and styles that she recommends, I brought it across my courses. What one PD learning opportunity do you wish every teacher, world language teacher, could experience? It's, see, that is such a hard question. Can I say that's a hard question because it depends on the teachers? Because every teacher's at a different level and the PD that they need would change depending on what they want to focus on. And so I guess my first, the most important PD is, would be how to focus on what you want to improve. Because I think if you can't focus on what you want to improve, you just won't focus on anything and don't improve anything. So how's okay. that for, for a non-answer answer? Team Marie? For me, it's um, going back to this question of, of how do we do culture in the classroom in effective ways and how language is used as the tool to get there. Okay. Thomas? OPI training. Uh, that's my answer. So, I mean, it's yeah. changed my mm -hmm. whole perspective on, on teaching, and I felt so terrible afterwards because I thought, if I had known all these things, I would have taught yes. completely different. So It, it was life-changing yeah. for me. Oh, yeah, can True. I change my answer? Yes. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, OPI was important for me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Thomas. I, I, was, I was. You know, I had the advantage. I was trained back in 1986. Mm -hmm. So I've had it for a while. Who was your trainer? Uh, Chantal Thompson. Oh, well, yeah. it's the best. Well, and then I had Becky Klein and Jeanette Bragger, oh. both of who were... And Cindy Martin's amazing. Yeah, yeah. just... So, yeah, I... Uh, it's interesting because you say there are some teachers out there that have never taught paradigms and I never it never occurred to me that you should teach paradigms and I'm and I'm and I owe that to OPI training actually and and the whole idea of knowing what your students are doing when they do what they're doing because I think teachers who don't have OPI training just think oh they're producing language yeah. but students who have OPI training they're like oh this is what they're doing this is what level they're at this is what I need to do in order to get them to do the next thing and in order to get them to do that I've got to give them this language and it just, all of a sudden, your class becomes life so much changing. easier. Yeah. Life changing. Yeah. I will say the other PD I highly recommend, um, it's not for world language teachers, is the Kagan, Kagan strategies. It's all about having students do interpersonal communication. And so you walk away with 20, 30 ways to set that up in your classroom and put your content into it. And for war languages, it's just a godsend. It's like, thank you for showing me all the different ways to move my kids around a room and classroom manage and, and so on. It, it was crucial. Um, and luckily, I got it my first year teaching. And just oddly enough, at Scott High School, they brought Kagan in. Okay, what one bit of knowledge you wish every administrator knew about war languages? One bit. We are not a throwaway <laughs> discipline that we have methodologies, research, and as much rigor as biology and chemistry. Good language teaching is just good teaching. You don't have to understand everything. If you, you can see good teaching even if you don't understand the language. I would say the language doesn't, doesn't matter. That it's more important to find a good teacher and have a good program. And it doesn't matter if it's Spanish or French or German or Arabic or Chinese. It's just, I wish that there were principals out there that would just say, I don't care what language I have, I just want a teacher who can teach it well. What one bit of advocacy should every world language teacher do for the profession? That's what I said earlier. Um, deliver proficient, highly proficient students. Okay. Um, can't wait for advocacy until things are bad. Advocacy has to happen when things are good. So you've got the high level kids, what do you, 
how do you let people know you have them? If the kids know, then they become the best advocates. So okay. it's not just that they can do it, but they also know they can do it. Okay. They become the best advocates because it's those very kids who five years from now will be principals and lawmakers and decision makers. So they can't just be really good at the language. They also need to know what they can do and why they can do it so that they can become future advocates. Wonderful. Stace? Probably that we are making it known that we are not just teaching language, that we are developing people. And uh, that's maybe okay. redundant of what has gone on before, but that's what I'm going to go with. That's fine. Jean Marie? I think one of the keys um, is obviously making them proficient and having them know why, as Thomas said, but also showing off what your students can do. It's a pain to organize the culture day where you have the people standing there speaking Spanish poetry or doing drama in French, but as a result, that impresses the people who don't have right. the skills. Finally, with all of the, uh, what Florida did, pass coding, is that correct? Coding as a world language. What would you have said if they called you in to testify, to give evidence as to why coding shouldn't be a world language? What, what would you have said? Oh, you know, I would probably have drawn on the studies that show that coding doesn't improve empathy, but speaking a language uh, to another person, regardless of the language, actually improves empathy. And then there was another study probably that I would have cited that shows that um, we are more logical in a second language. And so to say that coding actually it uses logic as a language, we, there's uh, there were a couple of studies with businessmen in Japan that showed that when the Japanese businessmen, or Korean businessmen, I can't remember, uh, when they made decisions using English, they were more logical. And then when they were using their native language of, of Korean, which I found hmm. fascinating. Um, and I don't, think that, um, I don't think that coding brings in those cognitive advantages that you're searching for, nor does it bring in the cultural advantages that you're looking for. So I think you're, we're stymied on both sides if we choose coding as a replacement of a world language. Okay. Jean-Marie? Um, I agree with Stace. So that's pretty much what I would have said. Um, but I would also add that coding is an extremely valuable skill. Mm -hmm. And it should be taught. It's part of global competency in the broader scale. Um, technology and being able to cope with technology is a good thing. Why should it be at the expense of another skill that is just as important? Maybe they should both be taught. Yeah, I th I, and I would have gone further than that. The idea, I wouldn't have put it one against the other. I think that was, I, I don't, actually don't think that was a good good move by the field to, to put us against, or to try to put ourselves above or better than, than the coding thing. It, it, just, it just shows how broken the, the structure of schooling is, um, because we're viewing it, both of them as individual subject matters. And yeah, I'm sure you can argue over impact on all kinds of things and, and meaningfulness and but the fact is that we, we need both skills, and uh, the fact is that there's limited time in the school day, so we've got to figure out how to change that mm -hmm. and change the structures that would allow kids to gain both skills. And if that means we don't teach it as a traditional subject, either coding or foreign languages, then I think then we can have a much more fruitful discussion than just saying one is better than the other. Mm -hmm. Teach coding in Spanish, you mean? Well, there is. So yeah. there, there was a great article from the yeah. uh, from the White House about the teacher who, who did that with, yeah. with native speakers, and it helped improve their Spanish. Right. Because you think, if you're going to be involved in a coding project, you're going to have to have lots of discussions with your client 
who will tell you in their native language what they need, why they need it, how they need the program to function, and then it's your job as decoder to translate that, to use our term, into something that will make a computer do what you want it to do. Well, those conversations, and I've just been involved in them over an English project, they're long and they're highly, at a, at a, I mean, talk about advanced level efficiency. So yeah, I think it's totally doable to do both. All right, well, this wraps up this podcast session. Thank you, Thomas Stace and Jean Marie. It's been a pleasure to try to capture the spirit of the off-air discussions that often happen, you know, once we turn off the um, mic here and kind of capture that in this roundtable format. And I really appreciate uh, each of you kind of not knowing what we were going to talk about, going with it, and just feeding off of each other is really kind of magical. If listeners do want to contact you, they heard something you said, they want more info, they want you to come to their district or whatever that might be, can you please give a way for that to happen? Um, Thomas, how can somebody contact you best? Uh, Thomas.sour at gmail.com. Okay. Stace? S. Dubravac, S-D-U-B-R-A-V-A-C, at uky.edu. J.Ruye, R-O-U-H-I-E-R, at uky.edu. Thank you so much. Now it's time for the polyglotting news. With our university updates, Jean-Marie, what do you have? The University of Kentucky is sponsoring an evening with the filmmaker Robin Hessman. She'll be screening her award-winning documentary, My Piristroika. The film tells the stories of five Moscow schoolmates who were brought up behind the Iron Curtain, witnessed the joy and confusion of Glasnost, and reached adulthood as the world changed around them. The film will be followed by a Q&A session with the director herself. This event is free and open to the public and will be on Tuesday, April 19th at 7 p.m. at the Historic Kentucky Theater on Main Street in Lexington. And for the KWA update, I do have news from our board. The regional PD sessions in the spring have been a hit. We've had 10 sessions offered around the state and we're glad to bring needed PD to you and your region. If you still have not attended one, I think there are some sessions being offered after spring break, so please go to the KAA website and look those up. The Showcase Committee continues to work hard preparing for the 2016 Showcase and Competition at Center College in Danville. They're expecting around 200 students to attend and to be able to show what they can do with the languages. The conference committee continues their work and are soon to open the call for proposals. So please consider proposing a 60 minute session or a three hour workshop. There are two positions on the board that will be up for election this fall, secretary and president elect. If you are interested in running for a position, please email us at info at kwa.org. And finally, uh, adding to our updates, we have KDE sharing some news. And from Alfonso at KDE, world language educators are reminded that the Kentucky Teacher, the online educational publication, now has sub-publications in a few content areas, and one of them is global competency in world languages. Topics on this page include the teaching and learning of world languages and global competency. It's a great place to go and see upcoming events happening and so on. If you have an idea to submit, please contact Alfonso. Also, the Confucius Institute traveled to China in March to recruit new visiting teachers. So if your district is interested, contact KDE. And KDE will be doing the same in April to recruit visiting teachers from Spain. So if you'll need teachers that speak Spanish, contact KDE. 
This wraps up our roundtable discussion of the world language profession, instruction, and professional learning. Thank you again to our guests, Thomas Sauer, Stace Dubrovac, and Jean-Marie Rurier-Willoughby, and as always, the University of Kentucky for producing our series. This is Laura Roche-Youngworth saying au revoir and happy teaching. <laughs>